episode 424 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, it's going to be all lawyers, right? Talking about technology for a change. Jane Bambauer, professor of law and now co-deputy director of the Center for Quantum Networks. Gus Hurwitz, a professor of law and Menard's director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law and policy at Georgetown Law and is a senior fellow at Brookings Institution Center for Technology Governance. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and hopefully chief provocateur for today's program. So the most pressing story and one that we probably will have to talk about more next week is the Supreme Court is going to take a bunch of Section 230 cases, two cases about the scope of the immunity under Section 230. Jane, my read of this is they're going to hand Big Tech its head, at least in the Gonzalez case, which is the one where they recommended some ISIS videos, kind of, well, gee, if you like the translation of the Koran, maybe you'd like to see some people beheaded by ISIS. And they're being sued for material assistance to terrorism. Twitter's also getting a suit, but they didn't recommend stuff. Hard to see that as public, uh, being sued as a publisher, isn't it? So don't, don't you just love that, Jane? We get the cert announcements like two hours ago and Stuart jumps in and says, Jane, why don't you tell us about these cases? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to plead. I have the five-year-old that had to go to preschool this morning, so, so I'm going to pass it fine. to Gus and I'll do high-level high sniping and analysis after he describes the cases. <laughs> So I'll, I'll say a bit, and I, I know Mark has also looked at these a bit. I, th these are two big tech cases, Google and Twitter, and they both involve terrorism-related speech and questions of aiding terrorist organizations. So it's really hard to imagine favorable sort of cases for Section 230 to be making it up to the Supreme Court with. And of course, the, these are going to be important, high-profile Section 230 cases, but they're in the broader context of will the uh, Fifth Circuit Section 230 litigation and net choice also get up to the Supreme Court this term. So it could turn out to be a really big Section 230 term. But uh, I, I expect that you're right, Stuart, in terms of these two cases, both involving that's criminal, I mean, federal criminal sort of statutes. So we're already not really in Section 230 land, but the companies have made the Section 230 arguments because, of course, they don't want to be accused of helping out terrorist organizations. And also they want to have strong Section 230 protections. So they're going to make the case. And it's interesting that it's these cases getting up to the court in the first tranche of Section 230 discussions. So there was no conflict in Gonzalez. It was close, but there wasn't a conflict and they took it. Right. Uh, 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 how about the Twitter case? Mark, I'm going to be quiet and let you take this one. Okay. I'm, I'm because you know, when uh, the court uh, takes a case where there isn't a conflict, it's because somebody counts five votes to reverse. They're, you know, they take those cases, there's, they're a little bit angry that, that the Court of Appeals got it so wrong. Yeah, that, that may be it. You know, Stuart, I think you're right, this whole question of whether Google's a publisher when it says 
about somebody else's content. Hey, I think you'd be interested in this. That, that does seem like a stretch for 230. And I think, Gus, you're right about this you know, being a criminal case. But I think the implications of this might be pretty far reaching. When does Google yeah. not recommend something? You know, almost everything that it does is part of a recommendation. So this this isn't just a small little hole in 230. It may be a pretty general no, this is chickens coming yeah, home thing. to roost. I agree. Get Jane. Yeah, I, I want to add one thing that Section 230 has been doing for, you know, as long as we've kind of, since Zarin, basically, is that it has been it has been for stalling or, you know, it has allowed courts to avoid having to ask the First Amendment question because there's a statute. And so, therefore, we don't need to ask whether platforms should be characterized as publishers or authors or some kind of some sort of new status. And and so regardless of how the Section 230 analysis comes out, I still don't think we'll have a clear answer about the First Amendment status unless the court decides to go beyond the issue raised in these yeah. specific cases. And there's no reason they should. I, I, I mm-hmm. kind of agree. Yeah, this is the most interesting thing that happened to me in the first month of tort class, which was taught by a guy who was into the history of, into legal history, is he had us look at the cases about the liability of railroads for things like setting fields on fire because sparks flew out of their locomotive and set the field on fire. And the first few cases said, oh, no, we couldn't possibly hold them liable for that. How could they stop that? And then within about I don't know, 25 years, all the cases have completely flipped and it's strict liability and couldn't understand that. But now I do. When the railroads were new and wonderful, nobody wanted to get in their way. And then within 25 years, they had so milked their monopolies and their advantages that everybody was a little bit mad at them. And the court's flipped on them uh, in terms of liability. And the bad news for Silicon Valley is they won so many cases so convincingly in the courts of appeals and the lower courts that they didn't get to the Supreme Court until they had completely worn out their welcome with most people in the country. And that's what I think is going to happen here. The, the court is going to say, hey, we've got a statute here. Let's read it. And they're just going to read the statute because they don't mind. And they're going to say, well, you obviously have no idea how to read a statute. And then we're going to see dozens of cases in which people say, oh, you got to read the statute. Well, it just says publisher. And all of the edifice of immunity that Silicon Valley has built over 25 years of hiring the best lawyers in the country is going to collapse. That's my theory. So you're saying 26 words originalism is going to be the approach here. And of course, the fascinating, important thing for those who are concerned about the size and potential market power of the big tech firms, and that's part of the major debate and discussion nowadays in every area of tech policy. If we do see dramatic change to Section 230 and liability imposed on firms for hosting this sort of speech, it's going to be the big firms who are best positioned to be able to absorb those liabilities and competition becomes harder and dominance is entrenched. So uh, be be careful what you wish for, as always, is the story of uh, this order of the day. Plus, they're going to take down everything, right? They're just going to take, if there's any doubt, we'll take it down. 
Well, so that's why I'm not completely convinced that this these won't be narrow opinions, very narrow opinions, mm -hmm. because there is a difference between the railroad story that you told, Stuart, and what we're dealing with here. It's a difference in scale, but it means it means that it that big tech firms might still have a winning argument that they are not even negligent and they could not possibly, you know, with the, the, the old story about transaction costs with the Sparks is that the railroads know all the property owners and can pay the, you know, can arrange in advance so that everything is predictable. They can contract around whatever the rule is. That might not be true with, at this scale. Yeah, entirely possible. Okay, so for all the whining about how it wasn't fair to make you talk about this, you've done a great job. Let's talk a little bit about why everybody hates them. Uh, Jane, Matt Taibbi had a, had a story about being demonetized because he put together a, or TK, and I think that's his organization, put together a video that showed all the Democrats over the last 20 years who have been election deniers. I remember when Bush was selected, not elected, and Stacey Abrams was the governor of Georgia in her mind for years. And all of that got thrown out, and it turned out that MAGA Republicans are the only people who deny elections. And he sort of produced this video to say, no, I don't think that's the case. And uh, YouTube demonetized it. I still can't quite figure out what, what their objection to it was, other than, you know, it's not fitting the narrative. Yeah, so Matt Orfalia made the video, and oh, Matt Taibbi right. was that's it's minor, but he was going to, he was going to launch it or announce it on his Substack, which has a lot of followers. But before that even happened, the maker of the video got this notice from YouTube that all they said was after manually reviewing the video, they confirmed that it isn't suitable for all advertisers, and as a result, it will run limited or no ads. The decision was reversed after. Matt Taibbi, you know, sort of got his fans <laughs> upset, I think. And so it was only demonetized for, I don't know, less than a day or something. But but I think it is a, it is another one of these portals that gives us a sense that decision making is, I mean, first of all, even when it's a manual process, it leads to results that can't be, you know, are not entirely under comprehensible or understandable. And it looks very biased. I mean, this just, <laughs> I think many more people watched this video, myself included, because of YouTube's kind of mishandling of the content moderation. Yep. Yep. Well, so Mark, there's a, another case sort of like this, a story from Just the News, which is digging into the connection between the government contacts with NGOs and kind of shipping them things they thought were misinformation about the election yeah. and then and then later funding those same NGOs right. and you know I, there's a lot of smoke there i'm not sure they've got fire yeah i mean apparently this consortium of private sector groups uh, included the stanford internet observatory the the center for an informed public at the university of washington it included the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council and Graphica, a social media analytics firm. So it's serious people. And they, they worked with the Homeland Security and also State Department. And what they did was to pass on to social media companies certain posts that they considered to be election misinformation. This was during the 2020 election. And then the social media platforms could take action or not. But platforms apparently took action about a third of the time, according to the group's report on their effort. 
And uh, interestingly, the group is getting the band back together for the 2022 election. So civil libertarians and others think this is a pretty straightforward attempt to evade First Amendment restrictions on government censorship. And some of them compare it to the now discredited and discontinued disinformation government board, governance board. But, you know, it's worth noting that DHS hasn't backed away from this idea of reporting election disinformation to media companies in the press release where it said, we're not doing the disinformation governance board anymore. They said, well, we're going to continue providing information to social media companies when we come across any election disinformation. And of course, the social media companies can take action or not. But whether the department works through a consortium of private sector companies or directly with the social media companies, that seems to me to be irrelevant to the policy and speech issues involved. And it's worth noting that other countries have similar government operations. They're generally called internet referral agencies, and they are controversial. It was an attempt to write them into the EU's terrorist material directive a couple of years ago, but the civil liberties groups objected and they got parliament to discard that from the final regulation. Israel's got a cyber unit like this, and it reports on Palestinian posts And a recent report from a business group suggested that the social media companies were biased in their content moderation efforts involving these posts. And the the report recommended transparency. And that seems to me to be the reasonable first step. If an agency of government refers material that it thinks it violates a company's terms of service or is otherwise a problem, it should make that referral public. And it doesn't matter whether it launders that referral through a private sector consortium. Uh, The government should also publish regular reports on whatever it recommends to the social media companies. And then on the social media side, the companies should reveal what referrals it got directly or indirectly from the government agencies and what they acted on and what they didn't and why. Uh, It seems to me that at least the first step here is sunlight. It's usually the best disinfectant. And before we do anything else, I think we've got to find out more about what's going on with these kind of Yeah, there's also, you know, there was uh, litigation by a fellow named Berenson claiming that he had been suppressed because the White House complained about him to social media directly. And then he actually FOIA'd uh, the the emails and it was pretty much what happened. So they're uh, putting aside election issues where CISA has at least some arguable, something useful to say about what is secure, what's a secure election machine. This is a completely different set of actors complaining about COVID misinformation, or at least information that makes the administration look bad. So this is happening for sure. And I think you're right. It only makes sense to the government to be clear about what it's doing. And then they ask the question, really, should you be doing this? I don't know about you. My feeling is it's legitimate for CISA to say, we have looked at whether these voting machines are secure or not, and they're secure. And when people say they're not secure for them to have something to say about it. But this thing very quickly got into saying it's misinformation to say that sending ballots in by mail is a, an avenue for fraud, which is clearly, it clearly is. And maybe there wasn't widespread fraud, but there sure could have been. And there could have been a lot of retail fraud, especially where they weren't even checking the, the signatures. So it 
morphs very fast under the pressure of partisan That's politics right. into something really the government should not be expressing a view on. Yeah. And, and one way to control that mission creep is, is transparency. Yeah. Just be open about it. So, Were um, either of you surprised that this consortium was so closed in terms of who they took referrals from? Because that, that, you know, I guess I understand the impulse for sort of civil society to play this function where they take the time to, you know, augment kind of the fact checking and then use their resources to make sure that social media is aware or something like that. But then it seems that their doormat should be available for not just the DNC, not just the, you know, federal agencies that are under the president's control, you know, the selectivity of the uh, of the people who are allowed to refer seemed very odd to me. Yeah, you're right. It clearly looks like there's an immense partisan tilt there. And of course, they didn't want really, they really did not want the Trump campaign telling them about things that the Trump campaign considered disinformation, because they thought the Trump campaign was evil. I'm sure that's what was going on. But it looks terrible when you realize that this is an organization that's been anointed by the government and then funded to take a close look and figure out what is disinformation that needs to be suppressed. All right. So, Jane, maybe I should ask you, there was a study of the economics of content moderation that sort of elaborates on my theory from a couple of episodes ago, which is that you can explain most of the content moderation decisions by Silicon Valley as they just don't give a damn. It's not making them any money and it's a pain in the butt and they'll just let second raters make the decisions. This is a little more sophisticated than that. They say, yeah, a little bit of moderation probably does make you a little bit of money. Yeah, although not for the reasons that people think. The reason I went looking for studies like this one, this is a study by a current graduate student at University of Chicago's econ department. His name is Rafael Jimenez Duran. And he used a method that I find valuable because he he found on his own 6,000 tweets that, that definitely violated the, the social media policy. I think it was Twitter he was working with. So they definitely contained slurs about disability with, I think, with a particular victim or something. They were, you know, these were not close cases. And so then he randomized whether he flagged them or not to see what happened with human flagging. Uh, so a part of it was to see how important you know, sort of user flagging is as compared to machine learning doing auto flagging. And he found that that humans are a big source. So going actually back to the consortium we were just talking about, if you can have an army of people flagging content that you think should be removed, that's going to be very valuable because the chance that a tweet gets removed is 66% higher if some human flags it. But overall, you're right, Stuart, that the baseline was extremely low. So almost none of the tweets were removed. (laughs) Even with the human flagging, it was only one, you know, it was like 2% or something chance that it would actually be removed. And there was no impact at all on the author's behavior. So he watched what happened to the author and they were just, they were neither more, they were maybe slightly more active, but not statistically significant. But what did change was how the author's readers responded. They became more engaged when a item was flagged. And so therefore, there's actually, ironically, a chance to gain revenue because people are more angry and more, you know, are sort of they're more engaged because either they're angry at the social media service for taking action or inaction, or they're just mad at the content. And so it does fit this theory that, uh, yeah, that, that content, I, I think, you know, 
content moderation makes some people happy and some people mad, and there's money to be made from both of those reactions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't think they care enough to do it well. I cannot forget, I think, the OnlyFans influencer who got suspended and said, it's not a problem. If you want to get reinstated, you just have to sleep with somebody at the company. I <laughs> <laughs> Okay, last one on this topic, and maybe it's on this topic. There's this very odd story. I think most of you have seen that there was an FBI whistleblower who thought that sending 25 people with their guns drawn to arrest somebody for a year and a half old charge of shoving a somebody at, in front of a abortion clinic was overkill, and that doing the same to some of the January 6 people who trespassed on the grounds but didn't do anything else was excessive. And he's been suspended and has become a cause celeb. His wife ended up talking to something called Moms for Liberty, which I don't, I'm not familiar with. And they said, what can we do for you? And she tried to respond and her account was suspended. Well, and importantly, she responded through a private Facebook right. message. So this is not about content moderation so much as, to my mind, somehow tied into the very aggressive, proactive stuff that Silicon Valley is doing on what they would call insurrectionist activity. Maybe it's to, they think that using their platform to do fundraising for uh, people associated with insurrection is wrong. And, you know, an FBI agent who has a conscience about this uh, is close enough to an insurrectionist that they should suppress uh, those kinds of communications. I can't tell, but it is a, it's very weird. At least half the time when somebody says, this is what happened to me in this context, they're not telling us everything. So I just can't tell how bad it is. But if this is what happened, it's pretty troubling. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it kind of reminds me on the listserv for cyber law professors where more than a year ago at this point, Eugene Volokh asked, like, what's the sort of philosophical difference between a, you know, an ISP that delivers email and decides to start content moderating the email versus social media companies. And, and you know, that produced a, <laughs> you know, he's a provocateur, much like right, that, and so, exactly. you know, that produced a debate. But, but you know, most of the reaction was like, well, that's really different. And once we're, we're talking about Facebook's private, you know, monitoring its private messages, it starts looking less different. And so it makes me glad. I still, I still am not down with Texas statute. And, you know, I think I think maybe, you know, the four of us might wind up kind of all over the map in terms of how we feel about kind of compelled hosting by social media companies. But I will say that I am very glad we do have common carriers and that, you know, that we should use, you know, when we're when we're pri when we're private messaging, we should use one of them. <laughs> Just yeah. in case. <laughs> Although, you know, the reason the reason that we have private messaging without moderation and as common carriers is only because Western Union didn't have lawyers as good as the ones that Silicon Valley had because they were in the process. They were in the business of saying, oh, no, I'm not going to let you send a, a telegram about a strike because we don't believe in strikes. And, and we're going to serve Associated Press because they write good stories about us. And we're not going to do UPI International because they are not on our side. So uh, for a long time, they were making all those content judgments and that they ended up you know, getting the railroad treatment and not surprisingly. Okay. 
Let's get out of content moderation land at last and a feel-good story. Uh, uh, U.S. beats Russia to head the ITU. Uh, Mark, uh, that's it. it, it yeah. it's, it's terrific. Yeah, this, this was good news. Yeah. Doreen Bogdan Martin, uh, she won the election for secretary general at the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union. And it wasn't even close. It was 139 to 25. She's a She's an American. She's been an ITU official for 30 years or so with the International Organization in Geneva. I know her. She's extremely smart. She's a very capable administrator, and I'm delighted that she got the top job. Um, it's a success for the U.S. too, because we campaigned hard for her against her Russian opponent. But what it means is not entirely clear. It might just mean that Russia isn't all that popular since it began its operation in Ukraine. And if that's what's going on, that probably is significant from a geopolitical point of view, but it might not mean much for the ITU's work. Alternatively, it might mean that other countries are now more accepting of the U.S. position that internet standards should be run by by multi-stakeholder groups like the Internet Engineering Task Force. And it might mean that Russia and China's efforts to establish internet sovereignty through the ITU have been repudiated. I mean, we're going to have to see. I think it's probably a little bit of both. My own take is that the rest of the world, including Europe, has largely rejected the idea that governments have no policy role in regulating the internet. And there's just not much point in, in fighting that one anymore. But on standard setting, there's still hope of keeping the ITU out of that business. And if you remember, about a decade ago, the US had a partial success during the Wicked oh, yes. Conference, the World Conference on International Telecommunications in 2012. We refused to sign the final regulations and took about 70, 80 countries with us. But, you know, opinions might have changed since then, and other countries, I get a sense, are more willing to let the ITU take the lead now. And China and Russia have their own proposals for the ITU to upgrade the Internet's protocols. I don't think the election should be seen as Any a repudiation of that. Yeah, I, I think you're probably effort. right. In fact, yeah. probably uh, Doreen Bogdan-Martin is the most dangerous person to be heading the ITU if you think they're going to slowly chip away at that because she'll be able to make it palatable to, to the administration. Yeah. I, she might wind up presiding over a new effort by the ITU to adopt internet protocol standards. We'll have to see. But in any case, it's good news to have one of our own there and it's a very deserving person. Okay. Let's talk about Congress. All the antitrust Sturm und Drang of the last two years are combining to produce a House bill on antitrust and tech that does, well, not much, right, Mark? Well, it doesn't do nothing, but it doesn't do what the reformers were hoping for. And it passed, I mean, a good vote for the reformers, 242 to 184. Um, but it, what it does is to update filing fees for mergers it reduces them for the smaller firms and increases so more, them for the more money ones. for the FTC. It allows the state attorneys more money for the FTC, and that was a point of controversy. It allows the state attorney generals to select their venue for antitrust cases, and it, it uses their merger notification process 
to require companies to disclose when they get subsidies from other countries, including China. Now, the other more controversial bills weren't brought up at all. And still, this 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 bill was controversial. Some of my conservative Republican friends like Daryl Issa, who's an entrepreneur himself, said, if you want to stifle innovation, vote for this. But the Republicans on the a House Judiciary Committee, especially Ken Buck, rallied the Republicans. He pointed out that lots of conservative Republicans supported the bill, Mike Lee of Utah, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, and Chuck Grassley, and that the Heritage Foundation was in, in favor of it. Uh, but the controversy even on this bill, which wasn't really damaging to tech all that much, probably means that the other antitrust bills are dead for the session, and, and maybe permanently. I don't think they're going to surface if the Republicans take control over the House. I mean, it's, it's worth reminding us what those other bills do. One of them says they can't, the tech companies can't preference their own services over their rivals. And the other puts some constraints on the app stores, giving the app producers some more power in that area. And the supporters of these bills have been pushing for a vote for months now. They almost got one over the, the summer in the Senate, but it hasn't happened. And I just don't think... It's going to happen in the rest of this session. So we might be seeing the high water mark for tech yeah, antitrust I think if, so, my, if the Republicans were drafting bills, they'd look quite different. And I'm not sure they would pass them. Gus? Yeah, my, my two cents on these bills. First, ICOA, the Open Markets Act, the other antitrust bills have been functionally dead for a while. And I think to put a slightly different spin on Mark's uh, characterization of the bills that uh, were just passed, I think they will allow any senators who've been inclined, any Republican senators who've been inclined to possibly support ICOA to be able to say, we did some antitrust stuff. Um, so they can check off that box and just on the margin, this costs a Senator Klobuchar one or two more Republican senators who might have been inclined to support her other legislation and just as another nail in the coffin there. I don't think that these the other bills are going to go away if only because Senator Klobuchar seems determined to keep bringing them up. So she so long as she's there, we're going to keep hearing about them, I think. But we'll see in the next Congress what her role is. But yeah, this is just another last nail. How many last nails can you have in the coffins before you call them dead? I'd also just note on the congressional legislation antitrust front, Congress just allowed the Ivy League antitrust exemption to lapse. So this is kind of the, the opposite of congressional legislation, perhaps, but per, perhaps as a surprise, perhaps not another congressional bit of activity on the antitrust front, this ability for elite universities to coordinate on scholarship terms, which has been particularly important in college athletics, is another thing going on in the background here. All right. Is Nebraska going to bring be the plaintiff in a price-fixing case against the, uh, the Ivy League? Uh, uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even even if it were Stewart, I wouldn't count on us. Well, we we managed to win a football game this uh, past weekend, so maybe we have some chance of occasionally pulling out a W. Oh, sure. Just put Brown on your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jane. There was even more content uh, moderation news, and I'll just ask you to. Pick what you think were the highlights among the many other candidates we had to talk about today. Yeah, I know. It, my cup runneth over <laughs> the content moderation. So uh, let's see. I mean, I think the story 
about the new Italian prime minister, Georgia Maloney, is pretty similar to the Matt Taibbi one. There was a video that was removed and then restored, and it's not clear why. It was a 2019 address that she gave that actually now now is like wildly popular because because it was apparent. I haven't listened to it, but it was apparently quite moving and explains the kind of conservative case better than a lot of other addresses, I guess. Then I think I get. I guess I would say the most interesting case is the one out of the UK. Uh, to me, at least, is the one out of the UK finding that Facebook is going to be held partly responsible for a 14-year-old suicide. Yeah, so, and I couldn't tell in, in, in a level of detail why. They said she got celebrations of self-harm or they were monetizing misery. It was really, yeah. it, it felt oh, yeah. a little, very emotional and only a little bit analytic. Absolutely, yeah. So they, yeah, right. So they used all those phrases in the in the. Uh, opinion. And also that the content, they blame the algorithms, which of course, if you can blame an algorithm, do it, right? That sounds foreboding. They said that the content, though, that she was served romanticized acts of self-harm. And I have no doubt, I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of like the terrorism content that we were describing. Like, I don't doubt that there are terrible things that none of us would want our children to be not just exposed to, but like repeatedly exposed to. And so I guess that's why I find this case interesting is that in time, I am very open to the possibility of expanding a kind of duty, especially for, for kids. young users yeah. yes, of, of social media and, you know, forcing tech companies to find a way to um, manage what I was describing as the scale problem, you know, but, but one-off cases like this, I agree with you, it does not point to what type of evidence should or should not lead us to make that causal connection you know, remember, I mean, there's almost always a reverse causation story to be told anytime someone's being exposed by the algorithm yes. to see a bunch of bad content, right? So, so, so I don't think this, you know, I, I think we're likely to see these themes come up again, even in the US, but, but I agree, there's not much to say about it right now. Yeah. The court didn't. It's, it's, I I felt the same way that maybe there's something to be done about what is recommended to or shown to, to kids, even kids who are 14. But this was, it was hard to figure out what the problem was other than they just really hated Facebook and this girl was dead and everybody felt bad about it. But all right, let's do the same thing, Gus, with uh, the FTC stories. There's a bunch of them. Pick the, the ones you think we really ought to hear about. Yeah, so there's a bunch of them, but none of them are the big news things. We're still waiting on UMC rulemaking from the FTC, non-competes rulemaking from the FTC, the uh, UMC statement that was recently promised. Uh, We've got the pending ANPR comments on commercial surveillance. None of that's happened in the last week or so. All of it will be happening in the next several weeks, maybe the next couple of months, almost certainly. So what's actually happened? So some interesting discussion. We're seeing the FTC discussing getting stricter with its security-focused consent decrees. In in particular, the big proposal they're talking about, or the big idea they're talking about, since it isn't a proposal, they can just do this, is starting to name specific individuals in consent decrees that would tag liability to those individuals, C-suite-level folks, if companies break those consent decrees to try and give them more teeth. This certainly has a bit more teeth in the idea since the Zatka 
Wilco News, Mudge from Twitter, going whistleblower, has, I, I think, given some more traction to this idea. Another thing that we are seeing, oh yeah, yes, yeah, Stuart, so, jump in. So uh, on that, in, in theory, of course, the FTC would, uh, I can understand why the FTC wants to be able to say, there's somebody we can find. But when, when you're boss comes to you and says, so they've asked that we put your name on this so that they can find you if it doesn't work out. Don't you ask for at least some kind of indemnification and, and maybe a an agreement that if you change jobs, you're going to be taken out? I'm just, I, I suspect this has a lot of complications when you actually try to make it work. Well, the bigger complication is it's just a stupid idea. If you're concerned about security, we already have a lot of problems with a lack of disclosure, and this just creates really strong incentives for bad behavior Ah, to not disclose breaches. And you understand why they're trying to do it, especially when we do have plenty of examples of firms not disclosing and bad behaviors that maybe this would help with. But the entire discussion in cybersecurity or one of the key discussions in cybersecurity for the last 10 or 15 years is how do we get firms to disclose and report because most security breaches aren't about a specific firm doing stupid things. They tend to be about systematic problems where we need disclosure in order to improve the overall cybersecurity ecosystem. And one of the most important ideas that we talk about nowadays is non-liability, a no-fault, non-liability disclosure. How do we get firms to share information about breaches so that consumers can protect themselves so that DHS and ISACs can get information and identify threats in real time? And, and this just makes that all harder. And it, it's, it goes back to my longstanding criticisms of the FTC's approach to cybersecurity of trying to beat the industry, use enforcement actions to beat the industry into being more secure. And that's just a, a com- complete misdiagnosis of why cybersecurity is difficult and actually makes things worse. Okay. All right. I'll just note another trend that we're continuing to see is the FTC tag teaming in its enforcement actions. They lost monetary penalty authority in the AMG case a term or two ago in the Supreme Court. And since then, the commission has started to partner other enforcement agencies on the non-compete side. They have recent MOUs with the NLRB at the federal level, but we're also starting to see them partnering with state-level consumer protection authorities. Authorities that might have state level a penalty authority to bring sanctions. So there's recent a case where they're partnering with the California, I don't remember the their abbreviation there, but Consumer Protection Authority, DFCI, in order to bring a case that will allow them, if successful, to actually get some blood out of the rock when they squeeze it. So that that's uh, probably something that we're going to continue to see much more of in coming years, yeah, unless as, they as, get as long, uh, as, clear authority. But, but only in Democratic administrations, because the people who are going to be aggressive about this are mostly in Democratic states, and they won't work as enthusiastically, I'm guessing, with a Republican FTC. Mm-hmm, that, that's likely, yep. Yeah. Okay, Jane, I, th- this is actual state legislation. It's passed and adopted before we had even heard it was kicking around. And it basically says it's, a, it's an interstate abortion war a case, that a piece of legislation that says tech companies based in California cannot respond to any subpoena for information unless the subpoena is accompanied by a promise that it has nothing to do with enforcing the abortion laws of some benighted red state. That, well, 
<laughs> That's correct. I mean, it's specific about um, ab- about the prohibited violations, right? So right. these are violations of other state laws that are prohibited from being responded to in California. So yeah, and so it's it would be liability. So, so it's any you know ex parte attempt to access data in order to arising out of liability or an investigation related to a facility in California that provides abortions. So this is um, going to this thing- is going to have a big impact right away because there are. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of subpoenas pending right oh, now. I know, that- <laughs> I know. It, it is expressive law. I agree with you there. I think it also, though, might just start a, I, you know, th- th- this is a, probably a path we don't want states to go down, I- I- in principle, at least, doing carve outs. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, sure, the concept of sanctuary cities, but when it, but, but you but know, at, so. I guess at the state <laughs> level, yeah. The <laughs> thing that confused me, though, that Stuart, maybe you can explain, is the bill seemed to say to acknowledge that sometimes what's going to happen is that there's going to be an out-of-court state that issues like an ECPA or a, you know a Stored Communications Act order or something like that, and it's served on the corporation, so they are therefore under federal legal duty to comply, right? Yeah. And are they supposed to not comply? I mean, isn't there a supremacy clause? This is not just- I'm sure they can't w- win that on a, against the feds. <laughs> I, I, uh, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, this administration might just say, fine, we'll give you the statement as a way of setting a, a precedent. And then the, the next time there's a Republican Justice Department, they'll stop providing it and then we'll have litigation. I don't think it's going to last that long. This is going to get tested in court it's easy well, to test. It? Oh, sure. But if, it, wh- if, if I'm the Texas, uh, the Texas Attorney General, I serve yeah. a completely unrelated subpoena on Google, and I refuse to give them the statement. And then I sue. And then I sue Google. I I treat Google as in contempt of court for having refused to comply. And and they try to say, oh, but I'm enforcing California law. And the Texas Attorney General says the crime was committed here. The subpoena was issued here. The only thing they're doing there is that's where they hire their lawyers. And we obviously have the stronger interest in this, so our law governs. And in any event. California is not giving full faith and credit to our subpoenas, which right, is, a, right. I don't I don't know whether the full faith and credit clause has ever been applied in this context, but it would be dead easy, I think, to interpret it as applying. So I just think that California is going to lose this sometime in the next year. And it won't, it, we won't even see a federal supremacy clause case because the- okay, But to be clear, it's not going to be tested. I think we both agree it's not going to be tested in the sense- that a state, at least anytime soon, is going to be investigating an out-of-state abor- oh, no. you know, a woman who went out of state for abortion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, in keeping with my observation that California is to federalism in the 21st century what South Carolina was in the 20th and 19th centuries, this is just California firing on Fort Sumter because, you know, and then claiming that this is all a war of Northern aggression. They are, they, they, they've picked this fight predictably, and the states that uh, want to restrict abortion are not interested in picking a fight about how to regulate people in California. That's my guess. All right. One more antitrust case. This one actually had an outcome, although maybe it's not forever. Gus, Amazon and the big publishers seem to have won a dismissal of their the antitrust lawsuit against them for agreeing on prices because there was no evidence they were actually agreeing on prices. Is that 
It's happening. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the real newsworthy item here, first, this was not a uh, federal or a public lawsuit. This was uh, private litigation against Amazon and other publishers. It was dismissed. And really, this just is yet another big antitrust suit, even though it's private, it still was a big suit win for the tech industry, the publishers, or I think the bigger framing is uh, loss for antitrust plaintiffs. We've seen the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission lose a series of cases over the last several months. Now, private plaintiffs are losing cases too. So if you are keeping a, a scorecard of antitrust litigation and trying to decide should you place your money on plaintiffs or defendants. Well, it's much better to be betting on the defendants right now. So Chicago school is still strong, is my guess. Well, uh, big, big surprise there. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's do some quick hits and wrap up. Gus, Privacy Shield 2.0 is coming. All the rumors are that we might see something even this week. Yeah. Is it 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0? At this point, I don't remember. But a proposed framework from the Biden administration with the European Union for how we can square the whole of American constitutional privacy values are fundamentally incompatible with European privacy values. The reports I've been seeing are saying as early as today, we could see the latest draft, or I guess now will will no longer be a draft, the proposal finalized and published. So it should be out imminently, almost certainly this week. It will then take probably at least six months to be reviewed and ratified by European authorities. But we all know what's going to happen inevitably with it, which is Privacy values are fundamentally incompatible. There's no way that unless one side or the other changes its constitutional values, basically, that we can have compatible values here. The innovation this time is very likely going to be some binding principles on the U.S. intelligence community that will guarantee certain rights to both American and European citizens that would be reviewed and enforced by some independently established court system query how that is actually going to be binding on the U.S. government if it ever reaches conclusions that the U.S. government disagrees with in an important case. But that's likely going to be the innovation that's going to be driving the latest iteration of this effort to allow American firms and European citizens to do business with each other. Well, it it probably buys us three or four years in in which people can continue to send data across the Atlantic and Google Analytics can continue to be used in websites before and probably most crucially, the contradiction between the aggressive 30-year campaign against the United States and the complete silence or near complete silence about China becomes a an intolerable tension and Europe has to actually do something of data transfers to China or admit that it's really only in the game to cause us pain not to actually resolve the issue. Well, Max Schrems is ready to litigate, I am confident, yeah. and Schrems 3 will be decided, you're right, in three or four years, and then we'll start working on Privacy Shield. It'll be the Hyper Shield instead of the Shield. Hyper Shield's up! Um, yes, I think that's right. right. Okay. It was a big week for espionage against the United States. Two military NSA employees tried to send 
classified information to Russia. In both cases, they claimed they were motivated by the Ukraine war and and maybe by their financial needs. An NSA cybersecurity expert tried to give away a bunch of, tried to sell a bunch of information about NSA's cybersecurity activities. And even more interesting was a, this will be going to require some discipline to keep this in mind, a trans woman member of the army who is still married to her wife of longstanding, sympathetic to Russia, wanted to sell a bunch of medical records to Russia. In both cases, they ended up talking to the FBI, doing their deal with the FBI, and getting arrested by the FBI. I have to say, I think the Babylon Bee best captured the truly intersectional nature of the achievement of the transgender spy with this headline, Russian spy awarded Presidential Medal of Freedom for being first openly transgender traitor to country. Um, Not sure that's quite true. It depends on how you feel about Chelsea Manning, but it is certainly an achievement. And then Australia is, uh, there's an enormous flap over their telcos breach in which large numbers of records about passport numbers, the driver's licenses, all kinds of personal data on 10 million Australians, if I remember this right, was obtained and a leak was threatened. It blew up into such a mess that the person who stole the data has said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm destroying it. I'm not just going, please leave me alone. Uh, But the government was so embarrassed by that that they are determined to, to really assault the earth. And Optus is going to have to pay for people to get new passports. So it's a big deal. It was a pretty garden variety breach. It was not a big security hole. It was just a, you know, a dumb mistake in how they stored their data. But it is having massive impacts on Australian politics and on Optus, which I think is owned by Singtel. It's going to be a big deal for them. And that is the end of episode 424 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, thanks, Jane. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Mark. If you're listening and you want to comment on what we've had to say, send those comments to cyberlawpodcast uh, at steptoe.com or leave them in a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll even read the ones that are most amusing on the air. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 424 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Step Joe and Johnson.